So today's Bible reading is Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Saviour. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, You can find, as Naomi said earlier, the full outline of the talk on the Hub, um, if you want to do that. It would be good to keep um, that Bible reading open in whatever form you read the Bible now, page or electronic or whatever, um, and I'll be revealing um, parts of the um, outline as I go. I wonder whether you've ever experienced um, the disappointment of seeing uh, someone respond to the gospel and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ only some time later Um, to find out that they've given up the faith and failed to continue. It might be some years later that uh, you find this out. You might have moved and joined another church um, only to find out the news later on. Sometimes this sort of thing can happen to a whole church. Um, One seemingly once strong and healthy, but some years later... Uh, a new fad or a divergent teaching has crept in and led the church in a direction that's no longer consistent with the gospel of Christ. Unfortunately, over a number of years, I've seen both of these happen multiple times. For the Apostle Paul, this was his constant concern. Not simply is he to see people come to know Jesus and respond uh, to the gospel, but to go on and to build a firm foundation that would set them up for lifelong faith in Christ. He regarded it as a trust that God had given him and we will see it in a moment. But this trust was not always to keep, always easy to keep. Sometimes because of persecution Um, He had to leave places very quickly after he preached the gospel and after people had responded. At other times, the demands of his call to preach the gospel meant that he just wasn't able to stay um, as long as he might have liked in a place. He He sought, therefore, to appoint trustworthy people um, to carry on that task as part of his uh, trust. We meet one of those people today in our new series on the book of Titus. Of course, it is the person of Titus. Paul's Titus is the third uh, letter in what has become known as the pastoral epistles, one and two Timothy being the other two, and there's a lot of commonality between them. We don't know a whole lot about Titus, um, apart from a couple of important facts. He was a Greek. Um, and not a Jew, unlike Timothy, a Gentile therefore, and not a Jew. 
Now, he was probably one of Paul's converts, as uh, Luke said before, his true son in the faith probably indicates that. And just as Paul had left Timothy behind in Ephesus to look after things, um, so Titus uh, is left behind in Crete. If you look at chapter 1, verse 5, he says that to take care of it. Paul outlines the trust given him uh, by God and the confidence that can be placed in his proclamation, um, possibly, I think, set against some severe threats to the church, which we'll find out as we go through uh, the letter. This trust is noted in the very first verse and forms the title I've given this sermon, Furthering the Faith of the Church. In the first part of verse 1 we read, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect. God's elect is a common way Paul repeatedly referred to the church as a way of reminding believers that behind the preaching of the gospel by Paul it was the power of God working through him which had brought them into God's family. The apostle opens as he normally does with some uh, form of his credentials as an apostle and a servant of Jesus in verse 1 followed by his normal uh, greeting in verse 4 of grace and peace as we've already seen. What's unusual Uh, for Paul's letters, is what comes in between. For apart from Romans, this is the longest introduction of information between his designation as an apostle and his greeting of grace and peace. That occurs in all his letters. You see, typical of Paul's letters, for example, um, is his letter to the Ephesians, where he says... Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, then to who? To God's people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look through his letters, sometimes it can be a bit longer than that. A few other bits and pieces added, but nothing like we have here. Such expansion of his greeting normally indicates the importance of the themes he introduces. And there's one major concern introduced here for the Church of Crete that he will expand throughout the letter. The faith of God's people is furthered, established and built up first and foremost through knowledge of the truth. For Paul, knowledge of the truth refers to a defined body of Christian knowledge about God and about the world he's created. It's absolute and it's universal. And it has at its centre the truth of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, the good news about him. In fact, Paul sometimes in his language can just use the word truth to mean the gospel in that form. But the truth of the gospel leads to a greater body of Christian knowledge that has come down to us today, of course, in the Holy Scriptures. Now, of course, today the idea that there is such thing as absolute or universal truth has largely been giving a fair sort of bashing. And uh, if you ask anybody around the place, they'd be scoffed at a lot of the time, particularly by the educated as we have begun to make 
ourselves masters, if you like, of our existence. Truth has become simply what we define it to be and therefore becomes a matter of our culture and relativity. Now, it's not a new idea. It's, in some ways, it's been around um, for a long time, but uh, now it's become the norm. I found a, a wonderful conversation uh, this week way back in Lewis Carroll's children's book Through the Looking Glass, a conversation between Humpty Dumpty and Alice that went like this. The contemptuous Humpty Dumpty sitting on his wall said to Alice, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean. Nothing more, nothing less. Somewhat perplexed, Alice said, the question is whether you can make words mean different things. The question is, barked Humpty Dumpty, which is to be the master? That's all. In a world, you see, where we have become the master, we've become the yardstick of truth and particularly when it comes to the meaning of life. And the rise in social media, it seems to me, has only encouraged and become a prime vehicle through whatever you see as truth can be disseminated. Friends, this is why it's critical today that we should give ourselves to improving our knowledge of the scriptures with the time we have, of course, and particularly the truth claims of Jesus and the historical evidence that supports them. Further in the faith of the church depends on understanding this knowledge of the truth, centred in the gospel about Jesus and working out from there to the reality of God and his created world. As we'll see in Titus in the next few weeks, this has importance both outside the church and in terms of our witness to the world. But also inside the church in terms of recognising false teaching, prominent in Crete, and correcting error. And as we'll see even next week, this is a big problem for the leaders. Now, lest you think this knowledge of the truth is simply a set of ideas that you learn a theology, if you like, to grasp. Please note the next four words in verse 1. This knowledge of the truth, Paul says, is a knowledge that leads to godliness. The knowledge that Paul speaks about is a knowledge that has effect in everyday life. True knowledge changes lives. And if the truth Paul is talking about is the truth of the gospel, the historical reality of the life, death, resurrection of God's Son, then that truth must find its practical application in a life of godliness. As one writer, um, well, first of all, godliness is not really a word we use much these days, is it? So what is godliness? Well, it's nothing special, really, in a particular sense. It's not 
overly pious or something. It's really just, you might say, God-centeredness. That's what godliness means. That is a life where everything we say and do is lived out in devotion to God. Whether at home, on a sporting field, at the workplace, here at church. As one writer says about godliness, godliness is an essential feature of truth and a good test of its authenticity. That since it comes from God, it leads to God. Any doctrine which does not promote godliness is manifestly bogus. That's why, friends, it's so damaging to the cause of Christ when Christians fail to live consistently with the teachings of God they proclaim. The obvious example in our time in Adelaide, of course, has been the scandal of child abuse among the leaders of several mainstream churches. But this is not just a leadership problem. It can equally be an everyday problem among God's people. Sexual immorality, domestic abuse, Christian employers who treat their workers poorly, or people who church the old Sunday Christian who come to church on Sunday but behave in a manner that is indistinguishable from the world during the week. Knowledge of the truth must be backed up by godliness in Christian living. Otherwise it's worthless. Hearsay that has no basis in reality. Notice in the sequence of true Christian growth as a church or individual. It begins, of course, with saving faith, already assumed here uh, in Paul's introduction of his letter to the church in Crete. It's then furthered by a growing understanding of the knowledge of God's truth, which should then result in a transformed life, characterised by devotion and obedience to God in all we say and all we do. That cultivation, the cultivation of this knowledge, requires time and it requires effort. Its practice must be empowered by the Spirit of God, whereby we are transformed from self-centred and self-determining lives to God-centred and God-determined lives. Such dedication to knowledge leading to godliness is not an end in itself, however. Rather, in verse 2, Paul encourages the growth in knowledge and godly living by pointing to its supreme motivation and end result. In verse 2, he adds the words, in the hope of eternal life. In other words, this faith, knowledge and godliness that he has been talking about is based on the hope of eternal life. Fundamental to God's revelation in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, is the notion that all human history is divided into two ages. The present age and the age to come. The present age, of course, has its problems. The age to come is seen as something different and far better. Now, I think this idea of the two ages is not... um, simply um, some, a Christian thing really. It seems to me if you listen to TVs and movies and news items <coughs> and things like that, um, that 
This idea of the two ages is part, to some degree or another, of the human psyche. Every movie, TV, news item that portrays death, someone dying, particularly a loved one dying, you will see this age to come in some ways being said. Rest in peace. We know you're in a better place now. They are looking down on you right now. Your suffering is now over. We will meet again someday. These are all statements that are so common in our world and culture and what we see. These statements abound. They are statements about the age to come and its reality. The problem with these statements, of course, is that they do have no basis in reality. They're like what we might call wishful thinking. Not so for Paul. The faith of God's people, his elect, is based on the great hope of eternal life. And we completely misunderstand Paul here if we think the use of the word hope means that there's any doubt about the reality of eternal life for the believer. Rather, when Paul uses the word hope, he does so only because that reality has not come about yet. That's why he calls it the hope of eternal life, because it hasn't yet come about. It will only come about when Jesus, of course, returns. It's not because it's uncertain or equivalent to wishful thinking in, say, words we might say, I hope so. Nothing like that at all. And in verses 2 and 3, he lays out three reasons that support the certainty um, of this hope. The first is that hope has been promised by God before the beginning of time. This hope of eternal life is founded in the eternal purposes of God before time even began. Before Adam and Eve ever sinned and set humanity in rebellion to God, God's plan and promise to be revealed was always to bring about a people among whom he would dwell for eternity. That promise, Paul says, is absolutely ironclad. It is guaranteed because God cannot lie. That God is a God of truth who cannot lie, that's a fundamental attribute of his character throughout the scriptures. Here are just a few examples. Numbers 23:19 states, God is not human, that he should lie. 1 Samuel 15:29, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie. Or Hebrews 6.18 also refers to the fact it is impossible for God to lie. We humans, you see, are prone to lying and we often do, if we're honest. Paul probably makes this point here because just a bit further down, and next week we'll see this, in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says rather unflatteringly that the Cretans are always liars. He says worse than that too, we'll see. 
But this represents, you see, a massive gulf between God and us. For God simply cannot lie. Truth is part of his DNA. It's built in to him. And so this hope of eternal life is more certain than anything else that you can point to in this life, friends. It's absolutely guaranteed. And the third reason Paul gives for the certainty of this hope is that God has told us about it now. In his plans through the apostles, it has been revealed in time through the apostolic preaching. So verse 3 says, And which now at its appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. So the promise of eternal life lay in the plans of God before anything came into being. Given who God is, that makes the fulfilment of such a promise an absolute certainty. And at God's appointed time, he revealed the promise of eternal life by giving a command to his apostles to preach the gospel, the good news about Jesus, which comes down to us in its conclusion when Jesus returns in eternal life for all those who respond in faith to the apostolic preaching and give their life to Jesus. Now, if you think about that a moment, <clears throat> that's a hope that's in absolutely incredible given our world today. And we need to take time to ponder it. If I can take a moment just to add a personal note. This week in our community group we were discussing the last chapter of Exodus and the glory of God amidst his people. I'd already been thinking of course about um, this introduction to Titus preparing uh, for today Uh, and I shared what I thought was one of the greatest temptations for me as someone who lives in a land of plenty and even in the COVID era one of the richest and safest lands in the world. And that was the temptation always to put my trust in the things I have in this life. And not be thoroughly transformed now by the certainty of eternal life to come. It's crazy really. Because there's nothing more certain for the believer in Christ than his or her place in eternal life. And that is why the priority to further my faith by seeking to put into practice the knowledge of God's truth in the scriptures ought to be what energises me. Day by day. I wish it were always so. What about you? What energises your life? What controls your daily living? 
accumulating more and more? Or knowing God in such a way to live for him in all we do and say? In our part of the world, the temptation is so strong that we really are going to need the empowerment of God's spirit to live in true godliness. Why don't you pray that way for one another this week? Well, let me bring this to a close just by saying a couple of things about verse 4. Paul's actual greeting to Titus. We read it earlier. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The apostle, you see, was given a trust from God through the preaching of the gospel to bring about faith and trust in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in Crete, he'd passed this trust on to Titus, who would in turn seek to shape the leaders of the church in the same manner. For this gospel Paul preached at God's command was not his possession alone. No, he says he shares a common faith with Titus. The faith that Paul is seeking to further is in the end a common faith of all true believers. The leaders in every church share a responsibility to further faith through understanding the knowledge of the truth which manifests itself in godliness of daily life. In the words, if you like, of another letter of Paul in Ephesians 4, 4 4-6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of, of all, and through all and in all. A common faith that ought to unify us as God's people. A common faith that issues in common blessings that form a part of Paul's greeting in nearly all his letters. That is sharing in God's central blessings of grace and peace. Now it's easy to say these words with little thought. But the two great blessings of Christian experience that arise from common faith are grace and peace. Grace refers to the source and the nature of our experience of God. Our relationship with God has nothing at all to do with our efforts, our merit or anything like it. Only God's gracious favour upon us. And peace, of course, refers to what grace brings about. Peace with God, rather than being his enemy. Because of the blood that Christ shed for our sin. And that brings about peace with one another, friends, as a community of God's people. But it's also a peace about the future. A peace 
about what God has in store for us, a peace that rests on uncertainty and hope of eternal life ahead. Grace and peace. Paul, as an apostle, was given a trust. He passed on to Titus, a trust that should be the concern of all church leaders, a trust that we might all see as our responsibility too, furthering our faith through an increasing of an understanding of the truth and how it works through in our daily life. Why? Because in the end, friends, our future does not rest here, but in the age to come, the promised and certain hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, today for these words of introduction in Paul's letter to Titus. We thank you, Lord, for that wonderful hope that you've given us of eternal life, so certain because of your character and because you've brought it to light in the apostles' preaching and in the scriptures that have come down from them. Help us, Lord, to place our trust in that future and not in the things that we have in this life. Transform us as we learn more and more about you and the truth you have revealed, that it may transform us into godliness and God-centeredness in all that we say and do. And we ask it in the wonderful name of Christ Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.